Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. Okay, so I'm just going to say welcome to the Emerging Voices podcast. Today, I'm so excited because we have Dr. Stephanie Hahn joining us from Hawaii. And I normally say what number of episode we're at, and I don't know what it is. So it could be 13, could be 14, but we'll clear all that up. So I just wanted to get that all out of the way so that anything we say after this, we can use ostensibly or cut if it's terrible. That's also fine. Um, my first question that I'm curious about is, are you always Stephanie? Are you ever Steph? Are you ever oh, like a I short go by thing? Steph or Stephanie. Yeah. You know, it's so funny that I asked that because I'm someone who has like three syllables in my own name. So it's like, and it's kind of hard. Like people call me man, which I'm fine with. Okay. Let's talk about author, educator, woman warrior, 1999 Emerging Voices Fellow, Dr. Stephanie Han. Uh, Stephanie is the author of Swimming in Hong Kong, which is an award-winning collection of stories that crosses the borders and boundaries of Hong Kong, Korea, and the United States, giving us readers an intimate look at those who dare to explore the geography of hope and love, struggle with truth of longing and home and wander in the myth in the myths uh, that's a hard word of memory and desire hi stephanie hello aloha i think that there's so many things i want to talk to you about but i feel like because of like where we're at in time and place mm -hmm. you know um coming out of a pandemic going into a cultural revolution civil unrest um people in the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I feel like just before the pandemic, we had in within the writing community, the issue of own voices and the the controversy that came out on the backs of the American Dirt novel and uh, the feeling of the Latinx community being left out of, of the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we have the Latinx community, we have um, racism and hate crimes against Asian Americans, now we're going into even Black Lives Matter and, and, and it feels like the world is blowing up in this like amazing way. It's scary and it's amazing. So mm -hmm. tell me where you're at with that. Um, I think basically it's been a long time coming and that this is a natural outcome really of um, long time injustices. I mean, this is down to poor, a lot of it is very poor education and people's inability to accept the system in which they live and the reality and the histor history behind it. So if you had accepted, for example, that the nation was founded on act of genocide and slavery, you would not be surprised by what is happening at all. If you accept um, how certain kinds of faiths prioritize uh, patriarchy, and the intersection of these faiths with different ethnicities, you also would not be surprised at all. The people who are surprised are those who failed to obtain an education within their school system, within their family system, within their system of worship. And this kept them away from the realities of what we are really as a nation. So to some degree, if you look at it even generationally, it's people, you know, because it's people who, a lot of the people that have more issues with this, obviously, a lot of them are older. I mean, to be perfectly frank, younger people are, have had a different series of texts to read, um, different exposure to pop culture, different ideas of polyculturalism and globality and travel and intersection, which is not to say they're all tolerant, but younger people are aware. And older people did not have access to these, let's say, images due to the internet. They did, you know, lack of uh, visual exposure. They weren't taught the text in school. So this is shocking to them. So I think it's also a bit of a generational problem. What do you think about this idea that intelligence corresponds to almost like an elasticity of the mind and like the ability to change opinions, you know, expand and contract, like kind of like your starting point? Yeah, I agree. I think also it's intelligence of the heart. 
right? It's an ability yeah. to empathize because it's not, it has nothing to really do with book smart. I mean, so I don't want to retract everything I said, but it's about, in, you know, you don't have to have read the history to empathize with people and what is, you know, you know, take a good look at somebody, what is going on. If you have the ability to see and assess, if you have the ability to empathize you, you know you can make um smarter choices about how we should be as a society it is a failure of the heart to open it is a failure of our ability to live with kindness and love and um and to not prioritize those as important values and to prioritize the accumulation of capital um, however, that is manifested above all else as the fundamental value. So there's a lot of things converging right now, actually. And I think it'll become more chaotic and more disruptive for a while, but I think we will come out better. And the, I honestly think that this is necessary, just like, you know, things do move forward, you know, three steps forward, two steps back or whatever, but there is there grows a, a greater understanding as we move forward of how we love and live. So I love that. So I totally agree too. It's like when the thing is so broken, you have to break it in order to rebuild it. You know, we can't keep just build. It's like this falling down house. If you just paint the walls, it's still a falling down house. Yeah. Right? And I think that um, to be honest, that the ability of the United States even to um, focus on this as a primary um, as a primary issue speaks um, good things about us as a community and nation. The fact that we are this upset about it, the fact that we are raising our voices, the fact that it is drawing different kinds of people, it's not negative. It's actually positive. It means that we are discontent with what is, and this is something great. And it's about how we view it. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. How did you become a writer? How did you know uh, you wanted to be a writer? What's your origin story? Um, my origin story. Well, I think I was always interested in reading and writing as a child. Um, I was isolated because I moved around in the continental United States because of my father's occupation. My father was from Seoul, but my mother is a descendant of the very first group of immigrants that came to the United States, 1903 to 5, from Korea. So I am that, I've met only one or two people who are fourth generation Korean American. By, by that time, you're all bled out, you know, vaguely dark haired, but that's about it. And uh, so we moved around a lot in the United States. And uh, that was kind of my parents' adventure. And as we moved, we would move to places like Iowa, where <laughs> there just wasn't a real diversity. The look of on your face was amazing um, right there. Well, no, I mean, there were some great things, you know, like, you know, you run along in the green fields, that kind of stuff. But, you know, as a child, there's also socialized isolation. I mean, there was like a Korean phone book of all the Korean Americans that lived in this community. And you would all gather, okay. you know, but it was kind of an isolated situation. And for me, my mother wasn't a native Korean speaker. She was from a, a woman from Hawaii. So her mode of operation was very different. She didn't really fit in with that group either. And okay. so I was kind of isolated. And my mother being sort of a 70s mom who was like, you know, watching Mary Tyler Moore and drinking Coca-Cola and you know, doing all the things that now moms would freak out about. She, <laughs> yeah, exactly. She <laughs> uh, said, you know, if you don't have a friend, you can always have a friend in a book. So, you know, Aww. encouraged me to read. And she was an introvert and a bookworm. So uh, that's what I, I did. I read a lot because I was isolated. And I, I wasn't like a total person that had no friends, but I loved to read. And in reading, right. I found a freedom that I didn't have, obviously, in real life. You know, there, I had agency in my mind. And, um, but, you know, I was really mostly interested in all kinds of creative expression, honestly. And so by the time I, right before I was a emerging voices person. I was living in Los Angeles. I was studying screenwriting and acting. I was going to acting class all the time. I didn't really have necessarily a, 
a focus on writing fiction, but what I, um, and so I was starting to turn to poetry because poetry didn't involve the same kind of collaboration. You know, when you do theater and when you do acting, you have to get along with large groups of people in a creative way that you don't have to get along if you're living in your mind as a writer, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so after, let's see, um, I got fired from a series of jobs, which I now laugh at. I, I was fired from, uh, what kind of jobs? I, had, I had the lead in a play, I was fired. Yeah, that was kind of a bummer for me. I had, uh, I was fired from my job as an assistant to a pr film producer, then fired from the job right after that as a, a script consultant. And so uh, feeling, oh yeah, and then uh, dumped by my boyfriend. So it was kind of oh, a real wow. low level of, of yeah. existence. I was, it was kind of sad. And then right at that point, I went back for a while to my parents' house in Memphis, decided to go back to school, finish my BA, because I wasn't done with my BA. And I um, got a grant then from the Los Angeles Department of Cultural Affairs. I came back to California to write a poetry chapbook. And that kind of put me on my way. And after I finished my BA, I went overseas to Korea. And I lived there, I had a sojourn there for about 18 months. I worked as a freelance journalist. I began to think about fiction writing very differently. Um, you know, I was still interested in movies and stuff, but not in the same way. And you, you, you seriously cannot ask me much about film or anything like that for like what's been going on. Cause I just don't keep up like that. Right, right. And so I, you know, I came back to LA and was writing and I applied to be an emerging voices person and right at the end of it, that was when I went on right after EV, I went on to San Francisco state and got my MA and creative writing and kind of started my peripatetic journey back and forth from Asia because my then uh, partner was, you know, from overseas, so. Okay, so did you meet Shonda uh, as part of that DCA oh, yeah. project? So, you know, what's amazing about Emerging Voices is, believe me, I have been in a lot of workshops. <laughs> I was like, I was in one at San Francisco State, um, MA program, I got my MFA at the University of Arizona. I did Vona, which was fabulous. But the people that I am in touch with and who proved to be the writing people in the trenches were some of the people from Emerging Voices. I kind of just kept up with them. And it was just so, I was like really proud of, like I had emailed uh, Renee Sims and Shonda Buchanan, Renee's book, Meet Behind Mars, and Shonda's, as you know. And I, I emailed them because I was like, I'm so proud of us because you know, here we were, what, 16 nine, to 19 years later, and all of our books came out. And these were the things we were working on during that time. And we just didn't quit. And I thought, you know what, we did it. And I felt really proud. Um, and yeah. I remember that Renee had told me she had gone to this event and Lucille Clifton had told this group of women, women can do it, but they just everything, but they just don't do it in the order they think they should be doing it. Something to that effect. Right, right. Yeah. And like, it's kind of like it takes as long as it takes. Yeah, it takes as long as it takes. And there were, you know, I looked at all of us. I was like, oh, my God, look at the journeys we've all taken individually through, you know, writing and degrees and partners and divorces and, and yeah. children and you know, it's a journey of life. And so, but yeah, you know, it, it was writing is obviously something it's, it's a, com a compulsion, right? Um, mm -hmm. But what I liked about the EV was I felt it was very authentic, because these are people that are not plucked out trying to necessarily avoid going to law school. Um, right. You know, they're really, you know, they're writing and they're making their time to do this and they're working and um, I think it's a much more organic and authentic kind of environment. And um, the the cohort was very diverse. They really were, that remains to date the highlight probably of my 
workshopping writing experience. And I'm not joking you. I've been to many workshops. That makes me so happy to hear. When I uh, started working at Penn after I was a fellow, um, that was something that was kind of drilled into my head for the selection process. It was like, these are career writers. Like, look, when you're reading applications, like, look for the career writer. Like, not the person that's just got a, like, is taking a year off from law school, as you mentioned. Um, even though we do have lawyers. Hey, right. Natasha exactly. Dion, we love exactly. you. Exactly. Um, I'm wondering, so your, your mentor was Greg Saris? Yeah, but it wasn't, you know, I would say honestly, and I remember he even said this, was it wasn't so much, although I had some interaction with the mentors, that's not, I mean, they were great, but really, honestly, I don't remember them that much. It was the people, it was the people who were in my cohort. And it's not that I even kept so much in touch with all of them really other than you know but I you know I know what Rhonda's up to I mean I just it's the memory of what they were trying to do and why and um, I felt that there was a very different kind of energy and I really can see it now having um, been around quite a few MFA programs you know ranging from you know City University of Hong Kong had the first English language writing MFA program in Asia it was on for like five years it got shut down you know I saw them in different you know different programs I like Vona Vona was excellent too I must say yeah that was an excellent yeah. program uh, but I the cohort that remained that I remember most was the Penn cohort and maybe yeah. it was also yeah. the first one I love, I love that. I think that's great. I feel that way too. I, I feel blessed every day that this is the job that I get to do. Um, I'm wondering, so were you working on uh, Swimming in Hong Kong when you were a fellow? And tell us your path to publication. Yeah, I was working on a story and I workshopped the story. I still remember this and it was so crappy. It sucked. It was terrible. And I just wanted to die of embarrassment. I remember oh it was in agony. I was like, oh my God, and everyone's writing is so good and oh my god this is terrible and you know I got over it Uh, so I was working on a collection of short stories um, at the time publication was slow my book was basically done more or less by 2005 but I had to wait for the internet and social media to take over and I'll tell you why because a lot of the things that I was writing about people couldn't necessarily put together in their mind because they did not get these images of life in different places coming up to them with such um, accessibility and speed and like, you know, beautiful images, you know, people doing all those like weird things, like let me stand on a cliff and wherever, you know, like these pictures, like they just weren't doing it at before, right? So my title story, Swimming in Hong Kong, is about an African-American woman of Jamaican descent and how she learns to swim from this old Chinese man in a swimming pool, right, in Hong Kong. And um, this was based on a couple of different uh, black women that I met overseas in Asia because there is a small troop of them that are like, you know, indefatigable. Like to be a black woman in Asia, you have to have something else really because of the way people are. They're very racist and it's very difficult to be there. But this is a kind of a real image, right? People couldn't, I think, honestly, people couldn't fathom it. I mean, where would I have submitted that story? I'm not African-American. The, the, the story is like a peculiar kind of story. Now we see pictures. We'll see like a, you know, affluent black traveler going to Asia. Or we see like a, you know, a Chinese person in Africa. Like, you know, you see these images coming towards you. We didn't see those then when I wrote the book. And so... Um, I think this was very difficult for people to kind of conceptualize different situations and things. And part of the reason, and some of these things are like sort of age-old questions and ways of being. I mean, there was the Silk Road, which people seem to have forgotten. There was always trade. There was always interaction. And, you know, I don't know what goes on with people. Obviously, it's like lack of imagination. But they, you know, they seem to think like, Ooh, you know, uh, multiculturalism was just invented in the 90s. I mean, it's really absurd. You know, people have been interacting like these ways. In, in I think it has to do with actually how Americans tend to be so domestically focused and inward thinking. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, you yeah. know, they used to call China the Middle Kingdom, like, because it would refer to itself as the Middle Kingdom, because anything outside of the, the Middle Kingdom line, you're a barbarian if you're outside of this Middle Kingdom. But God, you know, that's how Americans act, right? Yeah. And well, so- I think that that would be like the result of a system that's that centered on whites. Yeah, like, I think so. I, the narrative, and in 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 fairness too, it is a big continent, and you know I, we're basically five, six different little nations. Although we don't admit it, just because we have a Walmart in every state doesn't mean that we're all the same. You know, right. Walmart and Target yeah. don't make everything happen. You know, but you know, I I think that that the path to publication was difficult because of that, um, and yeah. also you know there's always gatekeepers. Um, and actually, my book was recently rejected again. This is kind of a hilarious story. So um, I sent out the book, I think it was in 2014. I mean, it was rejected hundreds of times, each of the stories. Like, I could write, a, I could write an essay on the history of rejection, like how it evolved from like little pieces of paper and you weren't sure if you should send in like a new envelope or old envelope to like submittable. You know, like I'm one of these like ancient, an ancient person who has been rejected for so long. So, so I can go to so like snail mail. <laughs> yeah, to, and like I'd be looking at like the oh he wrote the, the the writer wrote the editor wrote thank you it's in blue ink does that mean anything does that mean that they you know <laughs> oh my gosh you know like yeah. does that mean it, I'm closer to publication like I, I was so excited when I get like a rejection and somebody actually wrote in pen thank you. I would call my friends. Right. I'd be like, I think I'm closer, you know? Right, but, right, right. Um, rejection was just constant. And then um, what happened? Oh, yeah. So I wanted, what I wanted to go back to say was that, so about six months ago, I get um, this email. Uh, I had to laugh because the guy said, you know, we looked at your, it was from a small, reputable press, and I will not name names, though you've heard of them for sure. I said, we didn't think it really came together, you know, quite as a collection. And I emailed back, I was like, sorry, dude. I mean, it got published, it won several prizes, the ship left. Sorry, maybe you should think about what your gatekeeping is like. And maybe you should think about who are the editors and what you're looking for just from the superficial looks of who's on your board. And, you know, maybe maybe this is something you should examine. You know, he got in all a big huff and then I emailed back and I said, you know, it's all good. It's fine. Maybe right, we'll meet right. up. So you had it published and then you were looking to have it re-released? No, no, no. He got back and he took four years to read my book. Shut the fuck up. No, four years. It was like one of those small presses, but it's a reputable small press, but they took four years. Well, were you, okay, you're blowing my mind. So, so did you, were you like emailing them like every six months and being like, hey guys? I forgot. I'm disorganized. I forgot, you know, but I mean, I just like forgot about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's kind of hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> so so tell like how did it how did it end up oh, being published? okay so then um then what happened was the book won so all the individual stories were published or won prizes every single one okay and um then the book itself the manuscript got the awp finalist award and i'm going to give a shout out to Nahid rockland the author of persian girls because she this changed my existence. It's not like my life changed, changed, but just having the book done, it was a long time goal. So, but I was a finalist. They only pick one finalist. That means you don't get published, right? So I was like all excited. I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna get published. And then I was like, wait, I'm not getting published. But, um, but still with this, I was able to then, I approached a small um, overseas press, they were going to do it, and then I found out that this other press that was domestic wanted to pick it up, and there was this like back and forth about you're already under contract, blah, 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 and prize, no, so it got published, and the, the bottom line is it, 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 it just got done, and you know, okay. thank God that chapter's closed. <laughs> right, right. It was like so a, just why... a really expensive business card that took 17 years. I mean, that's the way I look at it now. 
<laughs> I just feel like I have so many questions about the publishing industry and like how the job of writing is seems very like obtuse and like confusing and well you know the thing is there's being a writer and then there's publishing and they have nothing to do with each other right they really don't I mean yeah. if you connect and it's really hard if you're a writer to understand that because obviously what you're trying to do is have a conversation right you're writing out something sending it into space somebody's reading it and they're responding to you and then when you send it when nothing is distributed there's no conversation back to you right so it's reframing what you want the conversation to be and rethinking about like okay if you send it out or if you do something other people read it is that also you're being published because then somebody is responding to you right somebody's right, responding yeah. to your story but they are not really connected you know and the people that control the industry it goes without saying what the situation is and this is then it becomes this whole sort of like scarcity of perceived scarcity of resources um you know how do we validate ourselves i mean the key that people need to look at is do you want your book to stay in print that's yeah. the key it's not i mean i don't know everybody's different but it's not does it get published it's like how long is it read? I mean, look at Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. I, it, he he self-published it the whole time. It was one book. He just kept adding yeah. to it. I think there was a yeah. one point where his friend published it. But, I mean, come on. Everybody reads Leaves of Grass. But right. that was not a book that was, you know, flying off, you know, the shelves at the time. Right, right. That was him publishing and republishing it. And also I think that what also we need to think about is different ideas of what writing how writing serves us and how books serve us at different points different kinds of books they're all good we all come to knowledge differently you know there's not there's not a more correct book to write there's not more valid things you know i can pick up a book by louise hay what is that like loving my loving people loving self or whatever but you know i enjoyed it i don't care right. I, I thought it was right. great you know i don't need to say that I, I i you know i'm not embarrassed to say it at all and that's a totally valid book and so is you know whatever crime and punishment that's fine right but i'm not yeah. going to necessarily you know and they're in different genres i'm not going to necessarily say you know Louise Hay's book did a lot for people, as did Crime and Punishment. And so then the, then the question just becomes, what do you need at different times? What words matter to you? What words are important? And to understand that writing is a totally unnatural act. There is nothing natural about it. It is not like walking. It is not like breathing. It is not like eating. It is you sitting there contorting 26 little squiggly lines into various configurations by yourself when you would probably be much better off going to the beach one day with somebody and having a conversation. I mean, it's not really... Oh, I hope you do that sometimes too. Yeah, but I'm saying it's not, yeah. you, know, we, right. you know, for us to try to normalize this, that this right, is normal, right. that reading is normal, that writing is normal, it's actually not normal. It's one of the most unnatural acts you can do as a human being. And I think if we acknowledge that and then we can see and think about storytelling and publishing and our validation in different kinds of ways, you know, oral storytelling. Now, that is that's totally different. Right. Okay. But, yeah. um, you know, the act of like sitting there in your cave and writing and being like, OK, I'm going to do this, send it out so someone distributes it. It's. You know, this is this is nothing natural, and it's hard for for us to think about um, validation coming from that space. And I don't think it's actually that healthy to think about it in terms of like that's that's what makes us more worthy. We are worthy, and our writing is important, no matter how widely it is read, because we are important, and our words are important, and what we have to say is meaningful even if to ourselves or to only a few other people. And we should never let somebody validate who we are. We as writers write because it's important to us. And there should be no one validating us. We validate ourselves. And if somebody wants to join in the validation, they can and publish. But we are totally valid without them validating us.
I am legit going to cut out this section and play it for myself every morning when <laughs> I wake up. Because seriously, I think that's so wonderful. And I know that I definitely care too much what other people think. And I care too much about, you know, how the work is perceived and and how it is distributed. So I wonder, you know, what is your, I have two questions. I want to know how acting informed your writing and if it has. Mm-hmm. And I want to know why you write. Like, what's the point? Like, how do you know that you have been successful as a writer? Okay, what, so the first one is... is acting and writing. Oh, yeah. Acting was great for dialogue. Oh, my God. I advise everybody to take acting classes because yeah. it is through studying characters and character evolution that you can really think about motivation. It shaped how I write dialogue. You know, in my mind, I'm doing little, you know, you're becoming the little character. And so, yeah. I mean, I consider John the late John Lenn one of my greatest teachers. I had the honor of studying um, uh, method acting with him for about two years at the Victory Theater, and he was phenomenal. And I still remember those acting workshops. They were really very significant to my development as a creative, period. Just going up, you know, when you would go up on Thursday nights and what you would do and your scene and creating this character and creating the character exercise. I mean, that was very important to my development as a writer, you know, and and narrative and yeah. character and the and the foundation of fiction is character, right? So so yeah. I, I yeah. considered my acting classes just as important training as any of my writing classes, to be honest. I actually got that advice probably about 10 years ago and I took an acting class as far as dialogue goes like you really do think about what would these what would they really say and you're playing it in your mind and you're fixing it as you go I thought that was really really helpful um okay so then how do you know when you've been successful as a writer Um, how do you personally when I feel good about it I mean obviously I write in spurts um I'm working on something now But, you know, right now my priority is, you know, I'm doing this and I'm launching my online teaching platform to teach um, writing. But I know it when it's, you know, when I feel good about it and when it's done. Obviously, I want the conversation to go and I want it published and, you know, I'm thinking about this, but I'm not. I feel like there's something I have to say and that I have to say it. And once it's done, then it's done and I'll, you know, and I'm good with with how I said it, I, I think it's okay. So do you, are you still in the writing group? Are you trading pages with other writers or? But I did actually, I just did, um, read, uh, someone's pages. It was really great. I, but I haven't traded back any pages right now, but I, you know, I will be, I, Mm -hmm. I, I I think I would, but right now I, I think I know, I, I know what my next project is going to be and I feel pretty good about it. Um, Do you want to tell us or you don't want to? Um, no, my next book is going to be a memoir about boarding school. Okay. That's amazing. I'm excited to read that. So how do you make money now? And then tell us about this, uh, online teaching. Oh yeah. So this is how I will be making money. I'm actually, I'm, um, I run writing workshops. I've been a secondary and I've been a post-secondary, you know, college educator. So I've, I've done adjunct work and I've also taught at prep school, but I'm sort of, I'm not on faculty now. And what I want to do is I'm launching this online teaching platform. So this summer, I'm going to be having classes for women and for girls. Um, it's about discovering voice. So the writing workshop for women will be multi-level. It's generative. And uh, the one for girls will be more like a little more like a class, not quite as workshoppy, secondary girls age 14 to 18. And I also teach um, writing workshops on narrative. So I'll be doing one for, let's say, at the end of the month for the Council of Korean Americans on um, narrative and identity etc so that's really what i'll be doing and i would love it if people sign up i plan to be doing also workshops on how to teach writing for secondary teachers how to and breaking down different kinds of concepts because i feel that what i felt was that right now especially that there's a need for a little bit of an explanation of certain ideas that are potentially theoretical but understandable for people like polyculturalism 
what is multiculturalism really? Um, what's Orientalism? What is feminism? I mean, they're very broad concepts, but at the same time, I think a little bit of explication with um, how it works with today's society would be kind of useful. It, it, you know, people need a little bit of a little bit of education to have certain kinds of discussions, and um, so I want to enable this as much as I can. That's uh, I'm I'm at that phase of my existence now, so <laughs> be yeah. an age and time. So that's what I I'm hoping to do. So. Great, great. Well, we'll definitely link out in the description for the podcast to your website, and then I'll be sure to share all the information for the classes on the so on the EV social media pages. I'm wondering how you ended up in Hawaii. Oh, because well, my mother is originally from here, right? So okay, I live across the street from like the where my grandpa grandma are buried you know in the grave oh wow so my family's yeah. been here you know over a hundred years and then my aunt went to the middle school that my um you know my 80 80 year old aunt went to the middle school where my son is going to school you know down the street so um i was an expatriate um going back and forth in the u.s and hong kong and um, right at that time, my mother was also wanting to return back to the islands in her old age. And so I also wanted to come back to the US because I wanted my child to have an American education at this point. And so we came back when he was in, let's see, third grade, third grade. So that's how I ended up here, right? But I right. have family, you know, a lot of family in California, some in Las Vegas, you know, mostly in California though. I only met you, met you, uh, the way we're staring at each other's faces on the on the computer, but because we were able to, you know, we usually do in-person potlucks, but we did a virtual one um, because of the pandemic and being stuck at home. So, so what do you think are some positives that will come out of this? Oh, actually, I think there are a lot of positives because people can feel that they can interact maybe in ways and have access to people and things that are they might not normally be able to do for physical or geographical reasons. While in-person lectures are great in classes, I really enjoyed teaching online. I finished up my year at Punahou and I had a great time teaching online. I it just it was as a medium, it suited me really well. Um, you really have to distill it to what students really need and it causes you really to think about it in terms of importance in that way. And I think it's a, you know, it worked very well. It works well for certain types of classes. You know, we're exchanging information. I think that there's, there's a lot of positives that can come of this, you know, uh, and I think things are permanently disrupted. Education will never be the same again. Um, neither will be how we interact and what we perceive as normal. There isn't going back. We have to just simply move forward and, and view it that this was a time where we had to regroup and rethink as a globe. You know, what is equity? What is fairness? What is necessary for everybody? You know, I mean, we need to think that things did not happen in vain. They happened for mm -hmm. a reason and mm -hmm. um, we will be better. Do you have, because you are teaching and you like it, because I've heard from quite a few people that they don't like it at all. Do you have a couple quick tips for teachers teaching in the virtual format? Things yeah, that have worked for you? I think that one of the things is, like I said, is to really distill ideas. Um, and one of the techniques that you really have to develop to do this is the, is the posing of questions. And so that's what I hope to do for my fall workshop. If, if you as an instructor can, with every text that's um, introduced, develop the skill of posing significant questions about the text, and that's all that needs to be posed, then then you will get to the heart of the text. You will be able to do it faster and more efficiently within the online capacity, you know? Mm. You know, a lot of times, you know, I don't really want to disparage, you know, how different people teach, but there, there comes a, you know, people use, can use technology as a crutch. So in other words, 
they can show the film because they actually don't understand the concept behind it when they're teaching it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Oh, because they, they can't ask the questions. So you, as an instructor, once you move to the online platform, the students are already seeing lots of images coming forward. You can assign the film. It doesn't, you know, usually you'd eat up two hours of your class time or, you know, a couple class periods doing that. That, you know, that just doesn't hold weight anymore. You have to teach differently. You have to up the level of your game in terms of the questions that you're asking so that when the student comes to you through the screen, you're able to meaningfully dialogue. Let them go home and watch the stupid documentary on themselves. You know, I mean, not stupid documentary. You know what I'm saying. Like, right, you know, like yeah. it's just like a waste of time, you know. So, right. so um, I think that that is important, you know. And of course, I am, you know, I'm the first to acknowledge that there are many complications because of access to technology. I'm not even going to address, you know, right. w what that is because that's something else than the whole content level of it. But it's also, you know, it's understanding people have different spaces; they want to share or not share, but. But I think that the ability to pose significant questions, you as an instructor, if you can deliver those questions in person, live, and engage with uh, discussion, you will have very meaningful interaction. And yeah, you don't have to stress that you're not meeting as much. Yeah. Are you doing more one-on-one -on -one meetings with students or are you staying in a group class format? Well, for my classes, for example, I'm going to cap it at 12. Um, and that was very deliberate because, you know, you can have um, classes up to 20. You can, I, you know, I'm supposed to be doing a lecture for the council. It's going to, there's 200 people apparently who signed up for one lecture. But, um, but that's different, right, than a class where there's interaction. But I'm going to cap it at 12 because I want the one-on-one. -on -one with the people you can break okay. you know there's techniques that people use they break them out and they put them in different breakout rooms but you have to have a established rapport i think to do that quite successfully you have to understand that you have to keep them in the dream you know what the expectation on the screen is going to be very similar to an expectation they would ha that students would have particularly younger students is you know you're trying to command their time you're competing against like a social media a youtube thing or, or right, like right, yeah. a movie so so what are you going to offer them and what you best can offer them is you asking them a question to look at themselves that's great introspection yeah I'm wondering if you, you know, Evie, in our in our tagline says has been uh, basically like supporting marginalized writers since 1996. I'm paraphrasing and shortening it, but I wonder, do you consider yourself a marginalized writer? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of Asian American voices, to be honest. So yeah, my story isn't mainstream by any means you know there there is there are many more asian american writers than there used to be but it's just not very you know a big bunch of people um, right uh further to that i was just actually talking to somebody a lot of what we construe to be asian america the whole concept of asian america that's like an that was you know coined in the 60s you know based on ideas of revolution you know, because the Philippines did not get along with Japan, did not get, you know, so this is a sort of a mythical idea anyway. But a lot of what we construe now to be a lot of Asian American writing, you what you might find is that it's mostly Chinese American writing. And that's okay. not necessarily, you know, that is a very different narrative than Korean Americans or Japanese mm -hmm. Americans. And then, you know, you need to rethink like the diaspora and how people navigate and move. So. Yeah, I could, would consider my narrative, you know, kind of marginalized in the sense that um, it's not a typical mainstream narrative. But mm -hmm. I think like any good narratives, there are aspects that we can relate to um, because good writing translates and moves. And we tend to forget that, you know, I think there's a, a and right now, many people live different kinds of lives and identities nobody is only eating one kind of food well i'm sure there's some people but nobody nobody is always like 
there are people, but you know, you're always interacting with different kinds of people. You're always maybe reading and listening to different kinds of music. We live lives now, and maybe we have to a greater extent, some of us depending, for a very long time that are infused with a diversity of people and perspectives. And I think that this is important for us to acknowledge and understand that I think as we move forward, polyculturalism is the theoretical construct that we need to be bearing in mind in the 21st century. Multiculturalism is used for administrative purposes. We need to allocate funds according to numbers. Within the nation state, there's this construct. But the nation state is a young beast. What, 400 years old, 500? You know, it's, it's very young. I mean, how do we know that... Um, that the United States will not be, you know, united, but uh, untied in another hundred years. We have no idea, you know, right. Hawaii was illegally annexed. It's really basically a military outpost because there was an outcry of it becoming a state because there were too many people who weren't white in it. We don't know right. what's really gonna happen. And so if we keep always thinking about things within the construct of a single nation, this is not really gonna move us forward. Black Lives Matter is of interest to the democracy movement that's happening in Hong Kong because they are born of the same things. It's about social justice on a global scale. It's about power, it's about money, it's about corruption. And there are people all around the world, in other words, that we need to consider and think about how we exchange with. It would be a failure for us to reduce everything now only to a domestic issue. It is not a domestic issue. If there's, um, you know, there's a nuclear accident in Japan, it shows up in the salmon on the shores of Oregon. You know, we don't live like this anymore because of in what's going on in the environment. So, you know, to me, we need to embrace ideas of polyculturalism, understand that the political movements domestically, as we've seen, which is awesome, affect people on a global scale, look to different places and understand that we have to operate together as a planet. We cannot simply operate with our own interests and look to different places for ideas. You know, New Zealand has it right in some senses. Let's look to New Zealand, look. They are not gonna prioritize certain things. What are they, you know, they're not gonna be prioritizing the accumulation of wealth to the extent that it will damage, let's say, the the lives of women and children that will strip the programs that are necessary to make a better society. We can learn from smaller countries. We can learn from different places. And this is what we need to do too. You know, look at some of the Northern European countries for women and representation. A, a woman, young woman taking an exam I think it's in Norway, if she's breastfeeding, she can breastfeed during part of the exam. You know, I mean, yeah. like we have so many hangups here in the United States of us always thinking, deluding ourselves that we have everything right. We, we do not, you know, many places have much better healthcare, much better transportation. I got better healthcare in Hong Kong than I did in the United States for free. Yeah. I mean, rock bottom free stuff. Yeah. What advice do you have for young writers? And I don't just mean young in age, but young in experience starting out. I think that, um, and I just gave a talk on this. I think there's two things you need to be a writer. There's only two. One is you got to have the skills. And that means like, you know, capitalization, punctuation, you know, you can break all those rules, but you got to know the rules to break them. And then yeah. if you break them, I know that you're breaking them and kind of roll with it. But you need to know certain things like this is story structure in this sense, or this is, you know, how description works or so you need to know craft tools. It's like if you're, uh, you know, a car mechanic, you need to know how to fix certain things, right? That's the same when you write. And the second thing, which I always tell students I can do nothing about, is you have to have something to say. I can't teach you that. I can teach you ideas of, you know, why you might further ask questions about yourself. But this idea that, that you have something that is worth somebody's time, that is worth actually your own time that you want to say. And those are the only two things, something to say and then the skills to say it, right? And mm -hmm. that's it. Really? Yeah. 
you know yeah. there's a lot of this like you need this this that. you don't those are the only two things you need to be a good writer but um the something to say it can be complicated it could take years it could you know and what you want to say maybe changes as time moves yeah. on yeah. you know and understand that the story of what you want to say is informed by other stories that you've read so you need to understand when you're pioneering and you need to own it and you need to be confident about it because if you haven't seen your story which goes back to marginalized voices or whatever then you're going to be confused and you're going to think that you don't have a right to say something or that something's wrong with your story maybe people just haven't seen the kind of story that you want to tell and then okay then just move on from there right I, I think that's beautiful and I think that's also like a great place for us to end unless you have any burn if you have a burning desire to add something else we are here for it um no I just hope that I would love to see writers uh women come to my workshop you know it's multi-level I feel like I my priority is helping you with your voice um, helping you be your best voice. And that is my main interest. And I think I can help you with it. And I think I can, I like to, because I think it's important to hold space for women. Their voices are not heard as much. We still don't own the narrative as we should. And so this is one of the primary reasons that I want to launch these for girls and women. Because I want to see more girls and more women owning their voice knowing that their voice is important and seeing those voices out there in the world because you know we author our life just as we author things on the page we author our life and women i want women to feel empowered to author their life because once you start writing stuff down you can put it out there and you can make it happen for yourself I totally agree with that. And I feel that happened in my own writing. Writing a story like brings you to life in a way that is indescribable. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for offering these classes. And thank you for sitting with us for an hour. You're the jam. Oh, thank you so much for having me, you know, really during this time. And just everyone stay healthy, um, stay sane, and keep fighting the good fight. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie Hahn. Bye, everybody. America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the emerging voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely.